Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, joined in the studio today by the very clever and very funny actress Miriam Shore, who it says here split her time growing up between Venice, Italy, and Detroit. True yes, fact. and then ultimately Torino, Italy, <laughs> and Detroit. And Torino is also known as the Detroit of Italy. Because mm-hmm. it does what? Well Makes. or poorly. Oh, are the Automobiles. cars made? Oh, oh, for legitimate reasons. Yeah. Torino and Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back and forth how often? Uh, every other year. So we moved to Venice when I was one, and we ah. lived there for a couple of years. Then we moved to Detroit. My dad became a professor there. My parents split up, and my mom had just so loved Italy that she went back, this time to Torino. Uh-huh. And every other year, my sister and I would spend one year with Holy my mom cow. and one year with my That's dad. That's an unusual arrangement. Yeah. Did it, it work out for you? It did. You know, kids are really adaptable, and, you know, I had my sister, and we just, we had this strange but wonderful upbringing. Uh, what was your dad a professor of? American history. Uh And what was his feeling about you becoming an actress? (laughs) So uh, most actors don't seem super happy, (laughs) and um, it's really hard to make a living. So I could see that being difficult for my parents, but they were still incredibly supportive. Well, um, we're very glad to have you here. We're joined as our live fact checker by our good friend, A.J. Jacobs, the author, podcaster, and uh, humanitarian. A.J., nice <laughs> Thank to have you, you here. Thank you yeah. for that. Okay. We've got on the line someone who's uh, purported to be able to tell us something we don't know. Her name is Catherine Cole. Catherine, uh, why don't you tell us where you're calling from and what you do there? I am calling from Portland, Oregon. I'm the producer and host of a national food and beverage podcast that's available on NPR One. It's called The Four Top. I'm also the author of four books on wine. I like you already. Miriam's been drinking since about 8.30, so I think she's <laughs> pro-wine. Uh, we'll... That sounds like a typical work day for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Change of oh career immediately. Yeah. All right, so Catherine, uh, tell us something we don't know, please. Well, you may be familiar with the wine term claret, but typically when people talk about a claret from Bordeaux, they're talking about a rich red wine. And often, you know, if people are thinking of a Bordeaux wine, they're thinking of a red wine. But it turns out that claret uh, for centuries was not a red, but a rosé. And in fact, from the medieval era through the French Revolution, the finest red wines were actually pink, not red. Miriam, with your Italian background, I should add that the name claret, it came from the Latin vinum clarum, meaning clear wine. Mm. And in Italy today, around Lago di Garda, there's a rosé called chiaretto, basically the same word as claret. And in Spain, there's a rosé called clarete, again, same word, claret, meaning clear wine or pink wine. So are you saying that when I order rosé at a restaurant... That no we one, shouldn't laugh at you anymore. Yeah, we shouldn't. So no more joking no. about no. pink wine. I am so happy to hear this because I love rosé. As soon as it like the temperature hits like 70, I'm ready. I'm, I, I'm, I wine glass out. I'm ready for a glass of rosé. And I was having an argument with someone last night about it. So I feel vindicated by what you're saying. How often okay. are you having arguments with people about wine? Depends on how much wine I've had. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so in past centuries, pink wines were considered to be higher quality. Um, and there are many reasons for that. One of them was that typically field blends were planted and a field blend would be not one variety, like today we think of just Cabernet Sauvignon or just Pinot Noir, but in order to minimize risk, estate owners would plant a, a variety of different grapes all together. So you'd have red and white grapes all intermingled. And it would be sort of a risk prevention plan because they never knew what the uh, season would be like, what the harvest season would be like, and they didn't know as much as they do today about viticulture. 
So this was a way to ensure that at least something would be ripe and healthy. And then they would just co-ferment everything together. Wow. So already wow. already you've got pink and white grapes together. Yeah. Um, and then because half the grapes were kind of gross and not quite uh, ripe yet, um, you didn't want the juice to uh, macerate with the skins and stems for too long because half of them wouldn't even be ripe. So the wealthy, the upper classes, the aristocracy, they would get the first free run juice, we call it, or the, the lightest press juice that would come out and it would be very light pink. And then the peasants and the poorer folks would get sort the of swill. dregs. And was it yeah. indeed worse? Yeah, it was quite sour and bitter. So I don't know much about wine, um, but even I know that rosé is considered, what? what's the word now, tacky? I yeah, mean, it's like <laughs> the wonder bread of wine. Right. Well, but I so think wh- that's changing. No. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Well, right. I think that's right. changing. Yeah. Oh, right, right. And so how did it get its bad rap? Exactly. Well, um... I could go way back and say the French Revolution was the first problem when uh, the lower classes Mm -hmm. rose up and said, hey, you know, down with the aristocracy and their pale wines Mm. um, and up with the rich, robust red wines. Um, And in fact, uh, a 16th century French physician recommended the hearty, earthy, blood thickening red wine for robust peasants while fragile Light-colored wines were said to be better suited to the delicate constitutions of aristocrats. Oh. So you can imagine, once you get to the French Revolution, how the peasants decide, okay, we got to turn this whole dynamic So they down. sort of made the idea of a, of a lighter wine as like an effeminate wine, and then the robust wine is a more masculine mm-hmm. wine. As soon as you say that, then the culture that is maybe run by, perhaps run by like a patriarchy yes. or some such thing, yes. might then turn the masculine thing into the good thing and the feminine thing into the bad uh. thing. But what about white wine? Where does that leave white wine? Because white wine was never de-classied, right? Well, it's interesting. I mean, our concept today of white wine is very contemporary because we have these fancy presses where we can press the juice off the skin. So we have this idea that Pinot Grigio, for example, is a white wine. But Grigio means gray. And, you know, back then they would just crush the grapes and that wine would turn out to be sort of pinky lavender colored. You were uh, mentioning earlier the wines that kind of brought down Rosé's reputation more recently. In 1975, this winemaker named Bob Trancaro had a little winemaking accident, and he didn't even mean to make white zin, but he had this sweet pink wine on his hands, and he bottled it, and it just sold like crazy. And its best year was 1985, but then Miriam, actually, I think you were onto something because I think that the macho movement of the mid to late 80s and early 90s kind of kill rosé. And during that era, we had wine critics like Robert Parker. Bastard. um, And he used (laughs) words like inky, muscular, full throttle to describe these very thick, tannic red wines that, you know, real, real men drank those wines. What would have been, so first of all, let me just, for the record, neither AJ nor I are remotely macho in any way. <laughs> but um, what mm-hmm. would have been uh, the kind of language that would have been more helpful in describing wines? People talk a lot about how the, the better thing to look for is balance. Um, so you want acidity, you want fruit, you want tannin, you want everything in balance. I want my food or my beverage to be like spunky but demure. 
Well, maybe that's, <laughs> well, that's, maybe that's balance. balance. She's saying that it would be that. It would be spunky but demure. Oh. But I mean, that, that's interesting too because I've always felt, and I would drink wine, you know, growing up in Italy, my mom's uh, uh, boyfriend at the time had this um, wine cellar for, with wines from like the 1920s, you know, that was just in his family and they didn't know. They would just bring up a dusty bottle and open it up and maybe it was vinegar, maybe it was wine. And I was 15, so I was just happy that someone was giving me a glass <laughs> of wine. Um, and we would taste it. And to me, I was always like, I don't know what you're saying with all these adjectives over here, but I don't like it. So part of me is always like, thank you for your opinion, but I'm going to always have my own opinion as soon mm, as I taste this yeah. wine. And what's your personal rosé history then? I always liked those really chewy red wines that turned your mm, teeth purple yeah, because I think they were risky. And then something changed. And I think I was like, I'm not going to care if it's dangerous or not. I'm just going to decide if it's delicious. And I'm sorry, but when you have a great rosé, it makes everything better. And also, I was put off by the pink color. Uh, Catherine, do you think that people were also put off by that pink color as well? Yeah, because they had that negative association. Um, but it's great now because um, the kind of new generation of wine drinkers coming up don't have those associations. And they're kind of re reintroducing the idea that pink is really a beautiful color. We're not afraid of pink beautiful. anymore. And like haven't pink. we all read that story about how long ago pink was the boy's color right, and blue right. was the girl's color? I, Which I, I, I did find a Ladies Home Journal article, 1918, Pink is a stronger color, more suitable for a boy. Blue is more delicate wow. and dainty, pretty wow. for a girl. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And we just decide things and we think it's always been that way. Yeah. I, I'm doing, so I do the show right now called Younger and it, there's a lot about the generation gap and millennials. And I have noticed that there's this, there's a lot of gender fluidity. There's also fluidity on, on who you um, choose to love. And it feels like millennials eschew labels, don't want to be boxed in. So that would probably be the same with pink. And there yeah. is actually a millennial pink. Uh, oh, that's yes, the, that is a official, color. Yeah. Official color. Hey, Catherine, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, I want to ask her what her favorite rosé is. Mm. You know what I'm going to say? Since yeah. you have this Italian background, yes. Miriam, yes. I'm going to say I love the rosés of Italy. Like I mentioned, right. Chiaretto, Chiaretto from the area around uh, Lago di Garda. That's a right. really exciting region. Um, Cerasuolo di Abruzzo from Abruzzo, an uh, area known for its red wine, has this really bright almost neon watermelon colored rosé that's awesome. really fun. Um, Puglia in southern Italy has a lot of really cool rosés coming out right now. Hey, Catherine, you're awesome. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks, guys. It was nice chatting. Bye. Too. Bye, Catherine. So Miriam and AJ, the humble and interesting beginnings of rosé. In terms of what Catherine Cole was telling us and the three criteria that we have, did she tell us something we didn't know? Is it worth knowing? Demonstrably true? Anything to add to that? I love her. I, I, obviously, she was wasted. But uh, <laughs> well, I do have a 10-second uh, fact about rosé, which is there are two ways of making it. The real way, which is you leave the red wine skins, the red wine grapes in the mix for a while and you get a little tincture. But the other way is to just afterwards mix the red and white. And that is gauche. That is very bad. And mm. there was a winemaker fined a couple years ago 10,000 euros for illegal rosé production <gasps> in France. Oh, because so he was mixing ooh. instead of... He was mixing ah. instead of... I'm tray, a little tray bit tray like, model. did people like it? Because mm. isn't that why we're drinking it? Great See, class. that is a big point about like... Just yeah. enjoy it. Like, yeah. let's not get too snooty. 
don't you feel vindicated if you're rosé lovers? Like, you can you can now go to a party and be like, listen, rosé was always the good <laughs> wine until those macho bastards came in in the 80s. <laughs> On behalf of all macho bastards, signing off, Miriam Shore, <laughs> thank you so much, AJ Jacobs. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. <laughs> 